This is Deep Dish on Global Affairs, going beyond the headlines on critical global issues. I'm Brian Hansen, and today we're discussing the nuclear deal with Iran. I'm here today with Michael Singh, the Lane Swig Senior Fellow and Managing Director at the Washington Institute, and a former Senior Director for Middle Eastern Affairs at the National Security Council. Welcome, Mike. It's good to have you here. Thank you. Also with us is Jessica Matthews, who's the Distinguished Fellow and Past President at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Welcome, Jessica. It's good to have you. Good to be here. What's framing the show is recently uh, President Trump uh, chose not to certify that Iran was in compliance with, uh, with the, quote, Iran deal or the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. Before we talk about the political situation right now, what I'd like to start off by doing is just reviewing what is in this agreement who negotiated the agreement, what did Iran agree to, and uh, what did the folks, including the U.S., that negotiated with Iran agree to do? The agreement was reached in 2015. It was the culmination of almost a decade of negotiation. Started with six months of secret talks um, in Oman. There was so little trust between the U.S. and and Iran that we needed an intermediary to to even get things started. But then two years of very intensive negotiations between Iran on the one side of the table and the so-called P5 plus one, which was the United States, Russia, China, Britain, France, and Germany on the other side, also the EU represented by their chief of foreign policy. And then the other party, Now a part of this is the so-called International Atomic Energy Agency, the IAEA. And then, uh, although this was an executive agreement and not a treaty, political needs required that uh, it go to Congress. And um, what is actually happening now is a result of a law that was passed when Congress approved that deal in 2015 and required that every 60 days the president certify that Iran was still in compliance um, and that waiving the sanctions under the agreement continued to be in the U.S. national security interest, which is a, a, a subjective judgment rather than an objective one and was the one on which, he, on which the president hung his hat. What he did was entirely a domestic act. It, it isn't directly connected to the deal. Um, it, it was just a certification under this domestic law, but it does have huge international implications. And what he actually did was to say, I, I do not certify, and then kick the ball to Congress and say, in effect, you change the deal unilaterally. And if you don't, then I may end it myself later. Sure. So I, I think it's important for the context of this conversation to talk about what the deal doesn't do as well. Because I think that the current controversy over this deal is inextricably related to the 2015 debate over this deal. And we have a Republican administration. Republicans were quite critical in 2015 of the Iran nuclear agreement. And what the deal doesn't do is it doesn't require Iran to dismantle its nuclear program. Instead, it essentially allows Iran to keep in place its ability to produce nuclear fuel. Uh, Iran has two um, centrifuge enrichment facilities. One is called Matanz. The other is called Fordo. They both remain open, although enrichment only continues at one of those facilities today. 
uh, and Iran is still operating centrifuges, still enriching uranium to uh, 3.67%, so low-enriched uranium. And and just to be clear, low-enriched uranium is not weapons-grade uranium, not weapons right? Uranium. So what's that used for then? So low-enriched uranium would typically be used for, well, a number of things, but typically for nuclear fuel for a power reactor. Um, of course, Iran has one nuclear power reactor at a place called Boucher, uh, and the fuel is actually supplied uh, externally for that reactor. So the, the nuclear agreement doesn't ask them to dismantle all of that. Um, it imposes restrictions on it, and those restrictions are temporary. So they begin to phase out, for the most part, starting in 10 to 15 years. Uh, after that time, the deal doesn't really talk about itself what Iran will do, um, but I, Iran has envisaged by through a separate plan of, to increase those nuclear activities. The deal also doesn't address Iran's missile program. Uh, for a nuclear weapon, you, of course, need not just nuclear fuel. That won't quite do it. You need to weaponize that fuel, turn it into a nuclear warhead, and then you need to put that nuclear warhead atop a delivery vehicle, uh, a missile, uh, preferably a long-range missile because you want that explosion to happen far away. Um, the nuclear agreement doesn't really address the missile. It only partially addresses the weaponization part. Iran has done a lot of weaponization research. We know that. Um, the deal essentially says, well, that's in the past, uh, and Iran has to agree not to do any more, uh, but it doesn't really have any verification mechanism uh, for that. And that's actually one of the issues that's controversial right now today, and, and we can talk about that more later. The other thing the agreement doesn't do, of course, is it doesn't address all those other concerns Iran, the United States has with Iran's behavior, say, in the Middle East. Uh, and so for many of these reasons, uh, Republicans and also some Democrats in 2015 felt that the sanctions relief provided to Iran was out of proportion to what we were asking the Iranians to do in this deal. And actually, if you look at the Trump administration's decertification decision, um, the only place where I would uh, correct what Jessica said is they were careful actually not to say this isn't in the security interests of the United States, but what they said was actually the sanctions relief is not proportionate to what Iran has been asked to do, which is one of the sort of other clauses in one of those criteria in the Inara bill. So we get sort of very down into the weeds on that. Uh, and the reason that's important, from my point of view, is that it then leads to what they see as the remedy. And here, again, I would have a slightly different interpretation of what they've actually decided to do. I think that what they intend to do now focuses less on con Congress, although that was um, part of the announcement, that was part of the president's speech. I think it's actually not uh, the sort of action that they're emphasizing now. And by there, you mean the White House? The Trump administration, right, I'm sorry. So the Trump administration, I think, doesn't see now Congress as the key arena for fixing or strengthening the deal. I think they see the diplomatic process as the most important, working with, say, our European allies uh, and perhaps others on diplomatic ways to strengthen the deal. Let, uh, me, um, let me just jump in here. First of all, to say that this agreement does not dismantle much of Iran's, not all, but much of Iran's nuclear infrastructure is is inaccurate. Iran has totally exported all of its higher enriched uranium, 20%, which is quite far along towards weapons grade. It has reduced its holding of low enriched uranium to 300 kilograms, which is far less than required for, for one bomb. It has dismantled poured concrete into the core of, of its single plutonium production reactor. It has limited its supply of heavy water, which is a key ingredient of making a plutonium bomb. It has 
permanently eschewed reprocessing, which is the process by which you make plutonium. It has uh, gone from two enrichment sites to one, and the one that is not enriching is the one that is underground and therefore relatively immune from bombing. It did actually an extraordinary amount of undoing many, many years of effort and money. Um, and so I, in order to understand kind of where we are, I think you have to kind of see a, a little bit more of what the deal did achieve. The criticisms of the deal, which which were certainly heavily political, I think everybody agrees at the time. No, I, I don't agree with that, certainly. Okay, but well, many, some um, people may. it started with Netanyahu um, before the deal was finished, which is a pretty clear indication that his objection was to any deal, not this deal, but any deal, for two reasons. One was he feared, and the Gulf states fear, that if this issue is dealt with, the nuclear issue, that the freeze, the deep freeze between the U.S. and Iran that has lasted now for 30-plus years will begin to thaw. And that would lead to a major shift in power balance in the Middle East. And he also objected to the idea of giving this government in Iran any greater legitimacy. Also, people were, with good reason, skeptical that Iran wouldn't just cheat. And many people believed they wouldn't do all the things that were required to be done before the deal even came into effect, all of which they did and did much faster than anybody expected. So now the the criticisms have shifted to two different issues, which are the, the relative, the, the various sunset provisions um, and the question of what the deal didn't include. There is now a very robust intrusive inspection regime in effect in Iran. It's not perfect, but it's very strong. And we have a mechanism under the deal to make it stronger, which is this so-called joint commission where all the parties can work. Um, and there are some ambiguities in the deal that have to be fought over and, and worked out. To take ourselves out of it is to take out the biggest lever that we have to improve and strengthen it. If the concern is principally what Iran will do after, the question is by what twisted logic does one want to move that time from 13 years hence to day after tomorrow? Uh, it, it just it doesn't make any sense at all. So your argument is that basically um, what this deal has done is Iran really has reduced its capabilities, um, and we have a, a period of time through the inspection regime and the provisions of the deal in which we have some assurance that Iran won't be pursuing its nuclear, its, its nuclear ambitions, yeah, right? It, you know, there's so much in the deal. It's 150 pages long. Um, very technical, that people, are, I think, don't appreciate that was some of it very innovative. Uh, I'll just if I had, could take a second to just give one example. In these situations, as we had with Iraq, people are always concerned about what we don't know. What's going on that we don't know? We know what the overt program is, but what's going on covertly? So what they agreed to here was to put Iran's uranium mines and, its, and the mills and the centrifuge production facilities under inspection 24-7 all the time. Those three sets of facilities have never been inspected in any other country uh, in the world. But what they allow you to do is to measure, and you can measure radioactivity down to the atomic level, how much uranium is going into the system at the beginning and how much is coming out of the overt program at the end. 
If the two don't match, then you know there's a covert program. Right? This is a very clever addition to traditional inspections and verification. So uh, we have a pretty good handle on what's going on in Iran, in Iran right now under the agreement. If the agreement falls apart, we lose it. In your position, Iran has basically done what they said they would do per the um, terms of the agreement. Yeah, they have nibbled at the edges. Um, but one of the things that is, is encouraging is that a couple of those nibbles were detected and found, brought to the Joint Commission, and corrected. So you know that both the inspections are working and the Joint Commission enforcement regime is working. What they haven't done, we have not clarified yet in the Joint Commission some of the areas of ambiguity in the agreement. And the worst ones have to do with so-called dual-purpose work, R&D, with research that could be related to weaponization, to making weapons, but doesn't involve either uranium or plutonium. And this is an area of ambiguity in the Non-Proliferation Treaty. So the worst parts of the agreement kind of build on the most ambiguous parts of the NPT. But the Joint Commission has the capability to go further under the deal. We, we disagree with Iran. We and Iran and the Russians disagree on how far they can go. Um, but we got to be at the table in order to get it to come out the way we want it to. Let me bring you in, Mike. Where do you see things differently from what Jessica just laid out? Well, I'd love, just give me a chance to uh, correct a couple of things that Jessica said, um, because the criticisms of the deal um, actually haven't shifted. If you go back to 2015 and you look at the criticisms of the deal put out, you'll see all of these issues foreshadowed there, whether it's uh, the inspection issue that uh, Jessica mentioned um, or the issue of the sunsets and so forth. So um, a lot of these criticisms were raised and were essentially ignored uh, at that time by the Obama administration because the way the Obama administration brought this deal forward was to first get it endorsed by the UN Security Council and then bring it to Congress. And so again, there was um, perhaps some bad feelings in the US Congress uh, about the way the, issue, the deal was put forward and the fact that it wasn't submitted uh, as a treaty. And again, I think a lot of what you're seeing now is a response to that. But more important than that, I think, is the substance of the deal itself. Because you asked about compliance. And I think the critics of the deal would say, really, the issue here is not Iranian compliance. And you saw that the Trump administration didn't fault Iran for not complying with the deal. The president um, did. What instead the issue is, is the agreement itself. Does it really sort of do enough to reliably prevent Iran from getting a nuclear weapon in the future? And I think the answer of critics has been no. And why is that? I think you have to step back uh, to get an answer to that question and ask yourself, what's the right yardstick by which to mention this agreement? Because Jessica mentioned several things Iranians did. Um, but I think the sort of what the listeners should ask themselves are, are those things important or are they not important for preventing Iran from getting a nuclear weapon? To get a nuclear weapon, as I said, you need three things. You need nuclear fuel. You need to be able to weaponize that fuel. And then you need a missile. Iran has already mastered several elements of this process. The other thing you need, though, is you need secrecy. You need to be able to per perform all of this work, or at least the key parts of it, to putting the, the nuclear weapon together clandestinely. That means that we don't think Iran is going to try to make a nuclear weapon or make fuel for a nuclear weapon at the facilities we know about. They've got that Natanz enrichment facility I mentioned. That was originally a clandestine facility. It was discovered by US intelligence and exposed by the United States and others. That second facility, Fordo, 
that was originally a clandestine facility. It was exposed by President Obama and the British and French leaders in 2010. Um, it's only overt now because we found it and we exposed it. So we think that if the Iranians were to try to pre prepare a nuclear weapon, it would be done clandestinely. To prepare a nuclear weapon clandestinely, you would want to be able to make the nuclear fuel in a small hidden facility. To do that, you'd like to have very powerful centrifuges because the more powerful your centrifuges, the fewer of them you need to make your nuclear fuel. One thing the agreement allows Iran to do, Iran has mastered those sort of uh, IR-1 centrifuges, which are uh, essentially rudimentary centrifuges, but the agreement allows them to continue to perfect their centrifuge technology, to work on things called IR-6s and IR-8s and IR-4s and so forth. Um, the other thing that Iran has yet to perfect, um, that the agreement again doesn't stop them from doing, uh, is to make that long-range missile delivery vehicle, an ICBM. Um, today we worry about the North Koreans being able to field a nuclear-equipped ICBM. Why does North Korea want that? Because it wants to be able to deter the United States, uh, which they have to reach using that kind of missile. So you could look at this agreement and say, well, what this agreement allows Iran to do is to consolidate the nuclear knowledge, the nuclear gains that it's already made, and use the ensuing 10 years to perfect that centrifuge technology, which is permitted to work on under this agreement, and perfect that missile technology, which is permitted to work on under this agreement. And so I think the question before the but Trump administration- it, But they don't have the fuel, the question which is before, the rate limiting step. The question before the Trump administration, therefore, is can you somehow fix the agreement or better enforce it so that we don't think they would be able to do those things? Uh, and can you also, outside of the agreement, try to address those things the agreement doesn't touch, like the missile program, which the original sort of framers of those UN Security Council resolutions, the sanctions resolutions that were lifted as this, saw as an inextricable part of Iran's missile program. I say that uh, with some knowledge because I was part of that process. The key difference between the uh, Obama administration's approach to this issue and the previous approach to this issue was that the Obama administration decided that they simply couldn't ask the Iranians to give all of that up, that that wasn't realistic. Um, and now whether you agree with that or disagree with that, that was the major shift. It didn't start with the Israeli prime minister. It didn't start with um, any sort of uh, external impetus. It started with the Obama administration coming in and deciding sometime around 2011 or 2012, after it had sort of continued the Bush administration's process, that it would concede to Iran the right to enrich and the right to keep a lot of that nuclear infrastructure. So, Mike, given that analysis, what do you believe needs to happen from this point going forward? You talk about strengthening the agreement right. as well as some things out to do outside of the agreement. Well, so what's, what's your prescription of what needs to happen? So the Trump administration came in facing two big realities, right? One was they didn't like the agreement. They didn't think it did enough. Um, the second, though, was that the rest of the world um, does like the agreement. Um, and the agreement is in place. It's endorsed by the UN Security Council. Uh, it's been essentially prevailing for almost two years. And backing out of it would leave the United States probably in a worse position, isolated. Um, it wouldn't, and it could arguably help the Iranians um, by allowing sort of them to drive a wedge between, say, the United States and Europe. So the Trump administration is, I think, left to try to fix or strengthen the agreement from within the agreement. And I think what they're trying to do going forward, uh, based upon, again, just my reading of, of how I see their policy pronouncements, is to say to the Europeans especially, look, if you want us to stay in this agreement, which the Europeans absolutely do, um, 
then work with us, number one, on trying to interpret the agreement strictly, trying to find ways to strengthen the agreement. And there are a lot of small technical ways you can do that when, that when you do them all together add up to, I think, a significant strengthening of the actual enforcement of the deal. Second, let's at least have a declaratory policy that says to Iran, if Iran decides to significantly expand its nuclear program, come say 10 years, when some of the most important restrictions in the nuclear agreement begin to expire, we would consider that destabilizing for the Middle East, uh, and we wouldn't accept it. Um, we can say that, I think, with confidence, because it would be destabilizing for the Middle East if Iran decided to dramatically expand its nuclear program. Other nations in the Middle East would probably feel some level of pressure to follow suit, uh, and you could have this sort of wave of proliferation around the region. Look, today, Japan and South Korea, as we know, are considering making their own nuclear weapons uh, as a result of what they're seeing in North Korea and as a result of the erosion of American reassurance in the region. And then third, let's ask the Europeans to work with us on those other concerns we have with Iran, to put pressure on, say, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps on Iran's missile program, so that it's not just the United States and our Middle Eastern allies who are doing that. Typically, in the past, we've gotten good cooperation from Europe on the nuclear program, but very little cooperation from Europe on Iran's support for terrorism and its activities in the region. And I think that's unacceptable to a lot of people in the United States. I think a lot of this, frankly, shouldn't be partisan in nature. I think if Hillary Clinton were president, I think she'd try be trying to pursue a lot of these same goals, frankly. And so what's really on the table, if I'm understanding it correctly, is really not such a sort of dramatic or radical position from the Trump administration. Let me, let me just go back uh, to when you said the small technical things. Would addressing shortcomings in the deal involve ballistic missile technology, and would it involve Iran's ability to continue to enrich? Would those things need to be addressed? So I think they, I think the ballistic missiles need to be addressed, but they aren't part of the deal. If the, to the extent the deal touches on ballistic missiles, it's to actually lift some of the restrictions on Iran's ballistic missile work through uh, UN Security Council Resolution 2231, which lifts the restrictions on other countries helping Iran. Uh, with its missile program come about 2023. So the missiles you'd have to, I think, address outside of the four corners of the nuclear agreement. Adding it into the nuclear agreement somehow would really require wholesale renegotiation of the agreement. Uh, when it comes to Iran's enrichment, again, I think that that was uh, part of the deal, and I think eliminating it is unrealistic. Eliminating it would require somehow changing the deal entirely, renegotiating the deal. So, so anything that requires renegotiating the deal is probably too heavy a lift at this stage. Um, could you envision a sort of future deal that expands upon the restrictions? You could envision that. Um, but the question, I think, will be come eight to 10 years from now, um, is the environment right to do that? What's the right environment that we need to achieve to accomplish that? Um, I think that the critics of the nuclear deal would argue that what you need to have is an environment, an atmosphere of deterrence, uh, that Iran has to feel deterred from taking some of those steps forward. Um, and I think that's something we need to work to reestablish in the Middle East today. So Jessica, you've just heard one possible path forward. How do you react? Are you convinced that this makes the most sense? Well, I certainly agree that it's unrealistic to think you're gonna renegotiate the deal. Um, and certainly unrealistic to think that Congress is gonna do that unilaterally, which is what the president actually asked. If and the policy that Mike described is, is not far from what I think needs to be done. But if that's what the administration was trying to do, 
they didn't come within a million miles of that. Because what they've done is um, uh, trash the agreement, is cast deep doubt on whether the U.S. continues to believe in it. What, What he just described is a strategy of building on it. What the president described was the strategy of tearing it apart. And, and not doing it directly, but asking Congress to do it and then saying if he didn't get what he wanted, he would kill it himself. Um, you know, you've got this powerful instrument in the Joint Commission that the deal sets up. For the Joint Commission to work and for strict enforcement to work, you have to have a commitment by all parties not to sweep even tiny little issues under the rug like Iran going over the heavy water commitment by 0.08%. That was raised, it was dealt with, and it was fixed. But once you start, you have to be able to do that with everybody understanding that your goal is to strengthen the agreement and not to kill it. And the U.S. certainly right now, nobody believes that if we were to raise an issue in the Joint Commission now, that that's our goal, is to strengthen the agreement, because they, everybody listened to what the president actually said. Where we are right now is uh, Congress may, um, I think will not, but could, under the law, use its 60-day window to um, reinstate nuclear sanctions. So that would kill the deal outright. Or they could um, amend the law, and which would be essentially trying to unilaterally rewrite the deal. Um, I don't think the votes are there for that. Um, or they could do nothing, which in one, this would be the rare case where that is actually the path of greater wisdom. Um, uh, but the U.S. is going to have to, if it wants to build on the deal, and, you know, I don't disagree on many of the things that need to be done over time. But realistically, to get them done, you build trust. You build a sense of commitment. You don't go two years in and say, oh, we think it stinks, and we're, we're going to um, either uh, get out or, uh, uh, or we're going to lean on um, uh, our European friends to violate the deal with us or we'll violate it alone. In doing this, um, are strengthening the forces in Iran that we most disagree with, the IRGC, the Guardian Council, the, the hard, hard right wing in Iran, um, at the expense of the moderates who want to have, want this problem solved. Uh, we are opening a rift with Europe. We are giving a gift to the Russians because they're, one of their top foreign policy goals is a transatlantic rift, and because uh, their interlocutors in Iran are the IRGC. So it's a double gift. And going forward, um, if we try to overuse our sanctions leverage through secondary sanctions on, on, on others investing in Iran, we will jeopardize the long-term status of the dollar as the world's reserve currency. And finally, and this is perhaps the most important, um, we have cast the doubt of the U.S. word. We have cast the value of the, the word of the United States of America in doubt. That may come back to bite us right away in, in, in trying to have some kind of diplomatic uh, solution on North Korea. But it will, if it happens, hurt us in, in ways 
that we can't possibly either know at the time or predict right now. When, when countries say, well, I'm not going to sit down and negotiate with the United States because they don't keep their word. So if the deal doesn't fall apart and goes forward essentially without us, we will, as Mike said earlier, we will be isolated in that context. But we will be weaker because able to be ignored than we have been since 1945 when we began to build a rules-based international order, which we have led ever since. And we will have taken a diplomatic achievement, which is not the whole deal by any means, but which is a huge step forward from where we were in 2012 and 13, uh, and made ourselves and diminished ourselves in a huge way. So that's what we're looking at as, as consequence. So Mike, do you agree that the Trump administration's a- approach really puts in jeopardy the, in- the entire deal? And then also, um, Jessica's longer-term point, um, does, do the tactics being pursued call into question U.S. credibility when it sits down and negotiates in the future? Look, I think my understanding is what the Trump administration is going to be focusing on now going forward is to try to get a diplomatic understanding with our European allies. Um, Secretary of State Tillerson said that that such an understanding would lay alongside the nuclear agreement. I think if you can do that, if he can do that, you've actually put the nuclear deal on a more stable footing going forward. And why do I say that? Because I think that in 2016, The most predictable thing on the foreign policy front was that if you had a Republican winning the presidency, this nuclear agreement was going to be in trouble um, because it was highly controversial in 2015. The debate was very partisan. And so, frankly, it's not surprising. I don't think any of the parties watching this, whether in Europe, uh, Iran, or elsewhere, um, were under any illusions that this had uh, tremendous bipartisan support in the United States. I think what's probably more surprising is that President Trump, having campaigned so vociferously against this deal, hasn't simply torn it up, but instead is, according to his top national security officials, trying to fix it or strengthen it while remaining within the deal. That's essentially how Secretary Tillerson described the approach. Look, for better or worse, I'm one who thinks that the United States should keep its word on the international stage. I do think that's important. Um, But for better or worse, we have uh, backed out of diplomatic deals in the past. You look at President Obama coming in and not liking the Bush administration's approach to missile defense in Europe. You look at Secretary Clinton uh, coming in and not liking the diplomatic deal that the Bush administration had reached with the Israelis over Israeli settlement activity, disavowing that any agreement even existed that was uh, enforceable. So we've done this in the past. I do think that we should try to keep our word. But the fact of the matter is that any administration is going to look at these agreements and ask, does this comport with American national security interests? Uh, And I think that what we can hope here is that the Trump administration reaches an outcome that they feel strengthens the deal, addresses those Iranian behaviors outside of the deal, uh, and that we're on a stable footing going forward. Because I think the unfortunate thing about this debate now is that in many ways we're rehashing the 2015 debate. Uh, We're focusing really almost exclusively on the nuclear agreement, when one of the predicates for the Trump administration's policy was that they wanted to broaden the focus of our Iran policy from just the nuclear question to that fuller range of Iranian behaviors. How do you do that? I think you've got to get this issue on a stable footing so that we can then move on to that broader policy conversation about Iran and about the Middle East, which 
is the sort of great neglected issue in this whole debate. Jessica, let me let you have the last word. What do you believe the consequences would be if this deal were to fall apart? You would um, strengthen the forces inside Iran that we like least. Um, You would give the IRGC what they most wish for, which is the demise of the deal with no blame. Um, You would cast America's word very much into doubt. You would give the two gifts to the Russians that I described earlier, a rift across the Atlantic. And, and, you know, Mike has talked endlessly about um, our our relationships with the Europeans. The Europeans hate what we're doing. Um, uh, You would um, jeopardize, if we try to use too much of it, um, uh, the, the strength of the dollar. And, and this is really very important, um, uh, you would open a new area in international affairs, that is the national security area, where the U.S. is seen to be stepping back and China will step forward, just as they have done on trade, just as they have done on development, just as they have done on climate, um, as this administration has stepped back on all of those things, and I guarantee you they will. So. Uh, the international consequences um, are not are not pretty. Terrific. Well, I want to thank both of you, Jessica and Michael, for being here and really um, unpacking uh, the issues that are involved. Clearly, both of you feel very strongly about um, about this deal and about what the path forward should be. And I, I appreciate you outlining with a great deal of clarity the basis for each of your views. So. Thanks for being here. And thank you for tuning in to this episode of Deep Dish on Global Affairs. As a reminder, the opinions you heard today are those of the people who express them and not the institutional positions of the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. If you like the show, please subscribe and ask someone else to subscribe as well. You can find our show under Deep Dish on Global Affairs in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Deep Dish on Global Affairs is produced by Evan Fazio. Our research and editing interns are Mike Tiernan and Jose Bernardo Reyes Facio. I'm Brian Hansen, and we'll be back soon for another slice of Deep Dish.